Hey there, welcome to a new episode of the Liberators Network podcast. My name is Christian Verwijs. In this episode, we're going to explore the question of how objective and unbiased we really are. We will explore eight cognitive and social biases and investigate how easily they distort our beliefs in the workplace. When you reach the end of this episode, you may be less convinced about your own objectiveness and unbiasedness regardless of how carefully you reason or how much information you have or how intelligent you are. Let's figure out if that's the case. But before diving into the episode, I want to take a short moment to thank some of the new patrons that joined since the most recent episode. Chungan K, Lydia Knurle, Ermin Gurbus, Remco Hogenberg, David Mitchell, Christina Keglarski, Yeo Cheng Fu and Rob Ferrer. Thank you so much for joining and for supporting our mission as the Liberators to unleash as many teams as possible. We're very happy that you're part of our community and that you're supporting us in making more content like this. Now we have many other new patrons that joined since the recent episode, but I'll spread them out a little bit over the coming episodes so that we don't have me talking for 10 minutes about all the new patrons that joined. If you also want to join as a patron and support this show, but also all the other content we create and receive all sorts of nice benefits, go check out patreon.com liberators. I'll put the link in the show notes. We have a couple of tiers that give you all sorts of nice benefits, and it's up to you which one is the most interesting to you. Take a look. Now, without further ado, let's dive into the episode. Let's begin by setting the stage. Have you noticed how people often only look for what confirms what they already believe? Or how people make blanket statements about entire groups of people based on individual observations? I have always been fascinated by cognitive and social biases. As we'll see in this episode, we often vastly overestimate our ability to arrive at sound, rational conclusions that adhere to the facts. While this is already a bias in itself, called the bias blind spot, it has big ramifications for our work in organizations too. Because what does it mean about our work when our reasoning is often so flawed and incomplete and biased? When the beliefs we have and the assumptions we make are shaped and distorted by biases that we're usually totally unaware of? For me personally, it's one of the reasons why I like the Scrum Framework, as it gives guide rails to help us think and to validate our assumptions with actual data that we collect as we go through the sprints. It's also why I like liberating structures and how they purposefully include different perspectives and voices to try to reduce biases. It won't make you invulnerable to biases or take all of them out of the picture, but it hopefully can reduce them or make you at least aware of them. This episode is about eight biases and how they manifest in the workplace. My hope is that after listening to this episode, you'll be more aware of them and can hopefully reduce their impact together with your team and the people that you work with. It's also good to note that this episode is based on extensive research that we did. So there are a lot of sources and references that we use to arrive at the things we're saying. Now, it's always a bit hard to reference sources in a podcast episode. So in the show notes, there is a link to the original post that this episode is based on. And it has all the references at the bottom of that post. So if you want to know more, that's a good place to check out. But when is something a bias? 
A listener of the science podcast Radiolab, which I highly recommend, by the way, once called in to share a weird observation. He had noticed how he would often run into the same combination of vehicles at the intersection he's crossed on his way to work. One cyclist, one car, and one truck. He judged the odds of that happening so low that he became suspicious. What was going on here? But a statistician then went on to explain that the odds are actually quite high when you consider the number of intersections that you cross on a typical journey, and the number of vehicles that pass those intersections. Also, the observation was further exaggerated because the person only remembered those instances where the combination was what he expected. Nothing suspicious was going on really. Instead, the listener had experienced two biases. The sampling bias, where you underestimate the odds of something happening compared to a base rate, and the confirmation bias, where you only remember those, conf- those observations that confirm your expectation. Although this is an innocent example of biases, their effects are not always as benign. Biases are at the root of many sociological problems like racism, sexism, political rifts, and general inequality. So what do we mean by bias exactly? A naive interpretation would be to assume that biases are inherently wrong and should be avoided at all costs. Behavioral scientists would have agreed with this view for a long time. But more recently, biases are understood as shortcuts to reduce the cognitive capacity we need to make decisions. Even though they are distortions, in fact, they can sometimes result in the right conclusions. But the fact remains that biases can easily lead to wrong beliefs that actively hurt yourself and or others, especially when you're unaware of them. Bias 1. Confirmation Bias The first and most researched bias is confirmation bias. Initially coined by the scientist Wason, this bias manifests when we only look for confirmation of our beliefs. It happens, for example, when we don't trust a certain person or group of people and then only see and remember those behaviors that fit with our beliefs or even interpret those behaviors as such, without considering observations where they don't. This is further compounded by how our beliefs shape our understanding of people's intentions in the first place. This creates, in effect, a self-fulfilling prophecy where your own belief strengthens itself. This bias often manifests as a positive test strategy, where people only test assumptions by looking for what confirms them, but not by also considering what would falsify them or prove them wrong. It is one of the primary mechanisms behind the so-called echo chambers on the internet, where people constantly reaffirm and strengthen beliefs that are in conflict with the facts. What are examples of this in the workplace? One example is when organizations start initiatives or change programs and only see or look for evidence that supports the belief that it is working, but fail to see where it doesn't, or even causes damage. Another example in the workplace is where confirmation bias can easily lead to sexism and racism, as certain behaviors are seen or interpreted to reinforce a stereotype, while behavior that doesn't isn't seen or remembered. And finally, another example is when people are opposed to an idea, they are likely to only look for what confirms their opposition. 
For example, they may start looking for blog posts that support their belief. For example, that Scrum doesn't work, but ignore many others that reject that belief. Or they may look for people who are also opposing the idea and essentially confirming their beliefs with other people that are also opposing it. Now, how can you reduce this bias? Like all other biases that we're going to cover and all biases that exist, this bias can be reduced by at least being aware of when it happens. So whenever you or a group you are with needs to validate an assumption or a belief, also consider what you'd need to see to challenge that belief. Deliberating structure myth turning is a good example of this strategy. This is also a reason to actively look for information that conflicts with your beliefs, or surround yourself with people with different beliefs, which liberating structures can really augment. So the best way to reduce confirmation bias is to look for information that does not align with your beliefs, even though that can be difficult and frustrating. It's a very powerful way to reduce this bias. Bias 2. The Fundamental Attribution Error in our day-to-day -day life, we often attribute the behaviors of others to their inherent traits, like their personality, experience, or the skills they bring. But as it turns out, our behavior seems to be more determined by the situation than by those inherent traits. The authors and scientists Ross and Nisbet published a book in 2011 that offers an extensive overview of research in this area. And the reference can be found in the blog post in the show notes. This naive psychology, where we attribute behavior to inherent traits, is an example of a bias called the fundamental attribution error. Initially coined by the cognitive psychologist Lee Ross, it happens when people underestimate the influence of the situation on the behavior of others, while overestimating the influence of their personal traits and beliefs on that behavior. This bias is also known as the correspondence bias. Now, what are examples of this bias in the workplace? The first one is when you attribute the mistake that someone in your team makes to their lack of skill, their inherent clumsiness or overall intelligence even, without considering situational factors like time pressure, the novelty of the problem and the lack of support that this person received from others. Another example is when you explain a colleague's grumpiness as indicative of their character without considering situational factors, like their home situation or the work pressure they are experiencing, or maybe there are personal issues at play that cr cause the grumpiness. And a third example is that during a job interview, an applicant may be considered introverted or shy because they don't talk much and seem nervous, where it is likely that this person would behave very differently if not for the pressure of the situation. So when you would hire that person, maybe they act very differently when they're comfortable and they know the people around them and they know the workplace they're working in. For each of these examples, a situational view where you consider the influence of the situation might have resulted in different behavior on the parts of others. The problem with the fundamental attribution error is that it puts responsibility entirely with the other person and their personality, skills, and experience. Even worse, it can lead us to blame the other person or get angry at them, even though they can't really help what's going on. It's the situation that's making it that way. Now, how can you reduce this bias? 
more recent analyses have shown that this bias isn't maybe as fundamental as we previously thought. For example, the bias tends to disappear when people are made aware of how situational factors influence the behavior. So one way to reduce the influence of this bias is to keep asking yourself, how can I explain the behavior of the other person or the other group through their situation instead of their personality or other inherent traits? Bias 3. False causality. When two events or activities happen together, people often conflate them by seeing one as causing the other, where no connection exists in reality. This is called a false causality, and it is captured in the maxim that correlation is not causation. When two events happen at the same time, meaning that they are correlated, it does not mean that one causes the other. There are many examples of this in the workplace. For example, the interpretation of marketing metrics like conversion rates and customer satisfaction can easily lead to false causalities. This happens when a current marketing activity is seen as causing the changes in scores where they are maybe only correlated in reality. Another example is big data in general. This is highly susceptible to false causality bias. A statistical consequence of the law of large numbers is that when datasets become large enough, statistical noise alone will create correlations where none exist in reality. Furthermore, the correlations that do exist are likely just that, they're correlated but they're not causally linked. And third, recently also, the rise of COVID-19 has been linked to the spread of 5G networks by certain fringe groups. These groups believe that 5G causes corona-like symptoms, where no such link exists according to extensive and repeated research by the World Health Organization and health professionals. This also is an example of false causality and also demonstrates how much harm can be caused by these beliefs. Now how can you reduce the false causality bias? One way to disprove false causalities is to look for where one event happens but not the other. And it's also possible that when two things always happen at the same time, there might also be another variable that is in reality causing both. For example, the incidence of violent crime tends to rise and drop along with ice cream consumption. But does the eating of ice cream then cause violent crime? Or do people eat more ice because of crime? Of course not. Instead, it is well known that both violent crime and the consumption of ice cream increase as it gets warmer. So if you were to look only at the data, you might conclude that ice cream and crime are correlated and in fact causing each other. So while they're correlated, they're not actually causing each other, but both of them are caused by a third variable, the temperature. So it's important when you think there are false causalities going on to look for ways to disprove the causality altogether or to look for other variables that might explain your observations also. Bias 4. The Regression Fallacy This fallacy or bias is caused by a statistical effect called regression to the mean. This effect implies or basically demonstrates that an extreme score on a variable is likely to be followed by one that is closer to the average, provided that nothing has profoundly changed in between measures. The fallacy happens when we attribute the drop in the second score to anything other than a statistical consequence. 
like for example the skill of someone or a particular intervention that happened, beginner's luck or even time. So what are examples of this in the workplace? When a scrum team scores much higher than their average on a metric of their choosing, like happiness or velocity, and if nothing has profoundly changed in between the measurements, the second score, the second measurement, is likely to be much closer to the average and thus lower. This is a statistical reality. The odds of that happening are just much larger than it not happening. So if you were to diagnose the scrum team based on two scores, and you see that one score is extremely above the average and the other one is much lower on the average, a bit above average or maybe even below average, do not automatically conclude that the team has made mistakes or is screwing up. This is probably just a statistical fact of what's happening in the measurements. Another example is that this fallacy can lead people to conclude that punishment is more effective than rewards. When an employee scores exceptionally high on a metric and is rewarded for that result, it is statistically more likely that the next score will be closer to the average and thus lower again. But when an employee scores exceptionally low on a metric and is then punished for it, the next score is likely to be closer to the average and thus higher. So this fallacy can, can lead us to conclude that punishment works better than rewards because when you punish someone, the score then increases closer to the average and when you give them rewards, because they have a very high score, it gets lower on the next measurement, where there is not such an effect actually happening. And this is just a statistical reality of working with averages and odds. People often fail to understand this fallacy because they underestimate how much of their behavior and their outcomes are influenced by randomness, which is a message that Nassim Taleb writes about in his book in 2007. Now, how can you reduce this bias? The best way to avoid this fallacy is by being cautious when you interpret a single extreme score that is followed by one that is much closer to the average or even below it. Instead of attributing the difference between the, the measurements to an intervention, to skill, to personality or time, it may simply be a regression to the mean and you need more measurements to make a more substantial claim. Bias 5. Anchoring Bias The anchoring bias is a cognitive bias where recently acquired information influences the decision of a person more than it should. What are some examples of this in the workplace? Because these examples probably most clearly clarify what the bias entails. The first example is when teams estimate work, hearing an initial estimate is likely to anchor further estimates. So when people are asked how much time someone will take and they are offered an initial estimate of 20 days, their own estimates will gravitate towards 20 days. That's just what happens because of the anchoring bias. The anchoring bias also explains why people often return to the first option after exploring many others. This is a subtle example of the anchoring bias where the first option is used as a reference for all the other ones and thus remains the most attractive one in our mind, even though that's not maybe objectively the case. In a subtle way, and I'm noticing this while recording this episode and while I was writing the, the blog post this is based on, 
is that the anchoring bias also explains why it is difficult to write something original when you've just read something relevant. It is difficult not to simply repli replicate what you've read. It's very hard to, to avoid being inspired by what you read before, simply because of anchoring bias. And finally, anchoring bias often happens in negotiations, where initial offers anchor the other offers. Research even shows that precise offers like, uh, uh, like $276,212 anchors more strongly than a rounded uh, number, like 300000 Now, how can you reduce this bias? The anchoring bias explains why planning poker requires participants to show their estimates at the same time. It avoids anchoring. It also explains why liberating structures often start by giving people a few minutes of silent thinking before moving into group interactions. Just these few individual moments of reflection may prevent anchoring bias, maybe not entirely, but it hopefully dampens it a little bit. And I've personally found it very helpful to distance myself from a decision for a while and revisit it later with fresh eyes. The influence of initial anchoring is less when as time progresses, especially when I take care not to anchor myself again. So that might also be a useful strategy for you. Bias six, survival bias. Survival bias happens when failures are ignored when you are evaluating if a process or decision is the right one. In a way, it is a more specific form of confirmation bias. A famous example of survival bias is how in the Second World War, Allied planes were often reinforced in those areas where ground crews observed many bullet holes. And this seems like a good idea, right? Until the mathematician Abram Walt pointed out that this was the damage on the planes that survived, and that these holes were obviously not critical enough to make the planes crash or explode in the air. So instead, he recommended reinforcing the areas with, without the bullet holes, because apparently if a bullet hit those areas, the planes wouldn't even return. So this is a good example of survival bias. What are examples of this in the workplace? The first one is that HR departments can conclude that their recruitment process is working well because it is producing suitable candidates. But the fact that some candidates survived the process isn't enough to conclude that the process itself actually works or is even more effective than not having that process or something different entirely. How many suitable candidates were wrongly rejected? How many candidates did the process miss that would have been more suitable than the people that you selected? Without that data, survival bias is very likely. Another example is that survival bias can lead management teams to copy practices from other organizations that appear successful to them, without considering where the practices didn't work or even caused damage. This is a significant problem with popular books like Good to Great and stories about successful CEOs that only focus on the success stories but ignore all the failures. And a final example is that when comparing different approaches to develop software, survival bias can lead someone to conclude that plan-driven approaches work well based on a few success stories they have where they did. Even though the admittedly limited research in this area suggests that agile approaches are at least three, more, three times more likely to result in a successful outcome, at least if you believe the Standish Group reports, which are in all honesty not super reliable.
Now, how can you reduce this survival bias? The best way to reduce survival bias is to be skeptical of taking what made someone or something successful, a survivor, without considering the failure rate. Search for examples of where it didn't work. Personally, this is why I'm always very skeptical of best practices and success stories I hear at conferences. Although their success may be real and it's awesome for someone to have experienced it, it doesn't mean that the practices they used were the cause of it. It could also just have been luck, which often is the case. Bias 7. Illusory Superiority In a study among academic teachers, 94% rated themselves as above average in terms of their teaching skills. All drivers consider their own driving skills above average, which is what Roy and Leers found in 2013. And people also overestimate the contribution of their country to world history, as Zarump recorded in 2018. In short, it seems that most people have an inflated and overly optimistic view of their own abilities and contributions compared to others, or from the group they are a part of. This self-serving optimism also manifests in other biases. For example, the optimism bias happens when we underestimate our chance of misfortune and disaster compared to others. For example, Weinstein found that people consistently rate their own chance of developing health problems is much lower than other people, and statistically this is not possible. Another variation of this bias is the Dunning-Kruger effect, where the less experienced people are at a skill, the more likely they are to overestimate their ability at that skill. Or the fewer people know about some field of expertise, the more confident their opinion is about something in that field, even when it is clearly wrong. Now, what are examples of this in the workplace? The illusory superiority bias can easily lead to frustration when people feel that they are contributing more to the team than others, even when that is not true in reality. Because people can't see the whole system and how much everyone is contributing to it, people tend to overestimate their own contribution. And this can easily lead to feelings of being wronged, not, not receiving what you feel you deserve, or anger or disappointment. Product owners can also greatly overestimate the degree to which they are familiar with the needs of their stakeholders. The Dunning-Kruger effect makes this more pronounced when product owners know little about their product or their stakeholders at all. But at the same time, it may make them even more convinced that they know about their stakeholders, which is what the Dunning-Kruger effect is all about. The Dunning-Kruger effect manifests when people without any experience with software development make strong claims about how easy a particular change should be. Many forms of micromanagement are examples of this as well. And finally, in a very real sense, this bias can easily lead to overly optimistic estimates, as little is known about the work yet. We tend to overestimate both our knowledge of the problem and our ability to resolve it. That alone already creates estimates that are way too unrealistic. Whatever the case, this bias shows that most people are overly optimistic about their own abilities and the confidence of their beliefs. Now, how can you reduce this bias? In all honesty, illusory superiority is difficult to overcome, as the bias exists because people are unaware of it. In general, it helps to encourage diversity in opinions and viewpoints in groups, 
and to create space for people to voice their views without, being, without fear of being judged for it. Personally, I found the liberating structure Conversation Café a great way to do this. Once there is openness in groups, people can learn to see that others may have more experience with something than they do, and then start trusting them more. And the final bias we cover in this episode is social conformity. Social conformity is another class of biases that is related more to our social nature. Up to this point, the biases were mostly of a cognitive nature and had to do with limitations of our minds. The social conformity bias is the result of tens of thousands of years of survival strategies. Our ancestors had to depend on others to survive for food, for shelter and for safety. So being able to fit in with a group was really a helpful survival strategy. And as a result of that, we really tend to do our very best to fit in. One example of this is our susceptibility to follow the beliefs of the majority in our group, even if their belief is objectively wrong. The psychologist Solomon Ash demonstrated this well in 1955 with his famous conformity studies. In one of his studies, a group of people with one real participant had to collectively pick the shortest line out of a set of lines of different lengths. The real participant was unaware, of course, that the other members were all confederates of the researchers. After some initial rounds of the simple task, the confederates would eventually collectively pick the same wrong line that was obviously not the shortest one. The researchers found that 74% of the participants still followed the opinion of the majority in at least one round, even though it was clearly wrong. Where most participants knew that the answer was wrong, but followed out of social pressure, some participants actually made themselves believe they picked the right answer, so they adjusted their perception of the length of the lines to fit with the opinion of the majority. The effects of this study have been frequently reproduced in other cultures, environments and groups. Social conformity plays a big role in another social bias called groupthink, which I wrote about before in a blog post. There's also a podcast episode about it. In groupthink, our desire for social conformity with a group takes precedence over critical reflection, even when the decisions of the group are unethical or dangerous. What are some examples of social conformity in the workplace? The first is that when decisions need to be made in a group, the opinion of the majority will likely be followed, even if that opinion is factually wrong or at least questionable. This effect becomes more pronounced as the majority increases and start appealing to social norms like don't be so difficult all the time or let's just get along. Another example is that people with diverging, diverging opinions are often rejected by groups based on their unwillingness to socially conform. Social conformity can make negative sentiments and gossip spread through the organization. If the majority gossips, the minority is likely to follow. When the majority expresses cynicism and negativity, the minority will follow. I should note though that the positive is also possible, the reverse is also possible. Social conformity is one of the processes by which the status quo in an organization is maintained both in what people believe or say they believe and how they behave. This explains, as we also explored in our previous episode, why it is often so hard to change how work is done in organizations. 
Our social nature makes it hard to prevent social conformity. Plus, social conformity is also useful in many cases. It's important to be aware of it though, and how powerfully it can distort beliefs and decisions. So how can you reduce this bias? As already said, being aware of it is one thing, but we know from research that social conformity decreases as the minority increases, becomes more visible, or is purposefully given space. So if you think you're suffering from social conformity bias in the workspace, try to increase the strength and voice of minorities. And that brings us to some closing words. This episode captures only a handful of cognitive, social and logical biases. It demonstrates how flawed our reasoning and thinking can be and generally even is. Then again, flawed may be too strong of a word. A milder perspective is to understand biases as the shortcuts that our brains use to reduce the processing capacity and to make quick decisions. One of the problems when you wouldn't have any biases is that it takes a lot of time to process all the information and arrive at rational objective decisions. So in order to make faster decisions, biases can be helpful. But although biases may serve this helpful function, they can easily lead to dangerously wrong beliefs. They are often the foundation of racism, of intolerance and fear of others. On a smaller scale, they impact the decisions we take in the workplace, with our colleagues and within our teams, as we've seen in this episode. Perhaps approaches like the Scrum framework and liberating structures can help here too. That is our hope. But it starts with recognizing that biases exist and that they distort our ability to arrive at solid conclusions and well-grounded beliefs. You really have to be aware of them first before you can start combating their influence. We wish you all the best in doing this and hopefully this episode inspired you in coming up with some ways to do this in the workplace. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you learned something new about biases and in a way I also hope that you're now a bit more skeptical about your own ability to be unbiased, to be objective and to be rational. The goal of this episode is not to be objective, rational and unbiased. The goal is to accept that those biases exist and that it's often very difficult to even be aware of them, let alone prevent them. But if you're aware of them, it makes your opinions often less strong, it makes you more open to other views. And I think that that is what this episode is all about. Now, if you like this episode, please rate it on whatever platform you're listening on. Maybe even recommend it to friends or listen it with your team to see if you recognize biases in your own work. If you like this episode and would like us to create more of these episodes, please consider becoming a patron. It's a great way for us to find time to do the research we need to do to record longer podcasts like this and to write the blog posts behind them. Having all said that, I want to thank you for listening and I hope to see you again for the next episode. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye.